Over the last seven years, I have tried every kind of marketing you can possibly imagine for my business. And I have determined over that time that direct mail has been by far the most profitable marketing channel I have ever tried. And I've spent over a million dollars just testing it out figuring out what works and figuring out what doesn't. And through that time, I've been able to generate over 100 deals per year in my business using direct mail. And now I've created a very small but very powerful mini course on how I utilize direct mail in my business. It explains everything I do from A to Z, and I've made this available to you absolutely free. That's right, no charge, no obligations, just go to my website, mikesimmons.com forward slash winning direct mail. mikesimmons.com forward slash winning direct mail to find out how you can implement my system in your business and start generating more leads through direct mail. Go check it out. It's absolutely free. I can't wait for you to try it. But I played soccer in college. And then after I was a goalie and after three elbow surgeries, I converted to uh Football, you know, it's a natural transition, less impact. <laughs> yeah, less damage to the body, of course. <laughs> you're listening to the Just Start Real Estate Podcast. If you're serious about your real estate investing business and need real answers, you are in the right place. And now, your host, Mike Simmons. All right, thank you for joining me on Just Start Real Estate. I'm excited to have you here. I'm excited that you've chosen to be here. Uh, I've got another great inter for interview for you. His name is Scott Crone. He is uh, from the Chicago area. And he founded the Coda Management Group, a firm that specializes in managing real estate assets. He does a ton of self-storage. He also has real estate that includes multifamily homes, retail, commercial warehouse, self-storage, like I said, and multi-use flex spaces. And his current investments are in excess of $55 million. This guy's been doing it for a long time. He knows this stuff. And he talked specifically uh, about why uh, self-storage, specifically self-storage, is a very resilient, recession proof uh, asset class. And it's an interesting conversation if you're into self-storage, if that's something you think that you're interested in, this is the interview for you. I'm excited to have him here and uh, let's not make you wait anymore. I give you guys Scott Crone. All right, Scott, thank you for being on the show. I welcome you to Just Start Real Estate and it's an honor to have you, sir. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to this. Absolutely. I am too. Uh, we talked a little bit prior to jumping on here live, and I told you I'm not in your niche. I, I don't have an expertise there, so this will be fun. I love to learn. I love to understand how other uh, investors work and other businesses operate, so this will be good for me as well as the audience. Um, and they heard a little bit about you, but why don't you, in your own words, tell the audience uh, a little bit more about yourself, your background, and, and uh, how you ended up where you are in, in business? Well, I grew up always dreaming about self-storage and so I grew up um, as a, a creative kid doing lots of Legos and lots of different sports and different things like that. Um, but I was fortunate enough that I was able to do architecture in high school. Okay. Not too many high schools are really offer that, but I also had the opportunity to play college sports. And so I, I gave up the architecture route to go play college sports and do a normal college thing rather than being dedicated to a studio. And I thought I had closed off that, that realm. Um, but then my parents showed up my, uh, my senior year during parents weekend. And they asked me what I was going to do next year, you know, when I graduated and I thought I'd be going into the family business, we were fourth generation family business. 
and die castings. And um, mm. I was told that that would not be happening. And I was like, well, did I piss off grandpa or, you know, like, what, <laughs> like what's changed? Right, right. And, uh, you know, they said, no, we're selling the business. And then they suggested I, you know, consider architecture again. And I was fortunate enough that they had just come out with these new programs that I could get a master's degree in architecture um, without having a bachelor's degree in it. And okay. so I was, I took about three weeks to a month off between graduation and, and graduate school and uh, jumped right back into it. And um, I was fortunate enough to get connected to a professor. I became his TA who owned a real estate development, architecture and contracting company. And so I got yeah. right into multifamily. That's and so awesome. my background was immediately multifamily. And um, when I started my own company in 98, we started off in single family and then got into multifamily mixed use. Uh, institutional. We did a couple churches and such. Hmm. And then the market crashed. And that's when I began exploring other alternatives because it was really hard in the residential market, except for apartments. And that's when I began exploring self-storage. And I saw the similarities between multifamily and self-storage, but how much more resilient self-storage was, especially in a recessionary and in a you know massive downturn market. So that's what really propelled me to sell off our multifamily and move into... Uh, um, self storage. Okay, so I have a lot of questions, but I, I have two that are that are at the top of my brain right now. Number one, what sport did you play? And number two, the hat that you're wearing is that related to the sport? I don't recognize the logo. This is the Louisville Bats, and um, so we like to support the local minor league teams that are around our facilities. Okay, and so uh, they're one of our neighbors, and so I wanted to give a shout out to the Louisville Bats as they embark on their season. So we have nice. Uh, all of our facilities are pretty close to minor league teams. And so we like that. That's awesome. Um, but I played soccer in college. And then after I was a goalie and after three elbow surgeries, I converted to uh, football. You know, it's a natural transition, <laughs> less impact. Yeah, less yeah. damage to the body, of course. <laughs> exactly. you, so what position did you play? Football. Uh, place kicker and punter. And you okay. should have heard the conversation with my mother. Uh, yeah, I'm going to go out for the football team. <laughs> That's not very pleased with me. About yeah, right. That especially one. after the surgeries, that's too yeah. funny. Um, okay, so you mentioned self storage. That's what your that that's what your focus is now. Why for the audience and for me? But let's just educate the audience here. Let's assume I know everything. No, I don't. But why is why is a storage more resilient than other real estate like multifamily, single family? Why is it more resilient? What makes it that way? Well. Ultimately, I think that self-storage is trying to overcome a challenge in someone's life. You know, so there, it's, a, it's, a, it's a transition. It's a difficult time. And it's, a, it's a, a relief valve, if you will, to address a problem. That could be um, downsizing. It could be dislocation. It could be divorce. It could be any of these sorts of things, right? Or, mm -hmm. or death. And so as a result of it, you're having to adjust things. You're having to, you know figure out things, and it gives you a, a, a viable option to address these things. So in recessionary markets, when people are having to downscale, it's a natural progression. So I went back and looked at every single recession since 1979 and compared self-storage occupancy to every one of those. And the reason I picked 1979 is that was as far back as I could get data on self-storage lockers. And okay. um, in, in every recessionary market, self-storage went down 1% and then went above. And then mm. it was um, always above 90%. Wow. And so no other, no other class of real estate have I seen that sort of resilience, even in the housing market. I mean, the, the housing starts slow down, um, you know, renovations slow down, all those sorts of things. You know, new construction just sort of stops in recessionary markets. 
but self-storage always continue to thrive. What do you, as a new investor or someone who has never invested in self-storage, let's put it that way, new to self-storage, how does one break into the self-storage world of investing? How does that, how does that work typically? Or what do you tell people if they say, hey, I, that sounds great. Like, how do I get involved? What do I do? Well, I think there's three asset classes within self-storage. And when we say asset classes, it's a little bit different than multifamily. So when we say class C, people think, you know, that's not a good neighborhood. In self-storage, that means like first-generation self-storage, smaller, like under 200 mom-and-pop type facilities. Mm -hmm. And I equate those to like a penny stock in the sense that, you know, you get a coupon. You can get a nice coupon off of this on a regular basis. The next would be a class B, which I would equate equate to a blue-chip stock, which would be more suburban, a little bit larger, still a drive-up facility, maybe climate-controlled. And you're going to get a a nice – it's going to produce well. Mm-hmm. And then class A would be a growth stock where you're going to see both appreciation as well as cash flow. And that is going to be more indicative of uh, bigger, larger institutional type products that you see in the city, like anywhere from 500 to 1,000 units. Okay. And so in each of those, I think the di- there's a different strategy. I mean, you can go and buy a class C one from a mom and pop, and that's an, it, that's an easy way to get into self-storage. It, but it's still a business. So you have to learn the business. Yeah. If you want to do a, a B or an A, then probably joint venturing or a, an equity investor, you know, being partners, being part of the partnership group that owns it would be another way of doing it. Um, or JV, you know, if, if we had someone who has come to us recently and said, I want to do this, I've never done it. Um, could you do it with us? And so that's where we partnered up with them. Okay. How does uh, how does one go about finding opportunities? Like wh- I know single family, right? We we pull lists from list source and or we do driving for dollars. How do you find people who own self storage who want to sell? Well, the most basic way is drive for dollars, right? You can okay. just go to around and if you're looking for class C, um, probably they're not incorporated, so it's pretty hard to find that. Um, you know, so it might be under their own name personally, mm-hmm. and you know they use it as. A bank account, right? Cash flow's coming in. It goes right into their pocket to pay their bills. So the best way for that is to just drive for dollars. I mean, there's brokers, there's wholesalers. Okay. Um, you know, there's all the same sort of institutions that are out there on the on the residential side. Um, it's the same for self storage. When you get into larger ones, it's predominantly done by brokers. So I mean, I, I get listings on a daily basis of new new things. So between Facebook or other broker marketing tools. Um, we're seeing facilities across the country on a daily basis. I know when like, you know, this is not what you're talking about, but it just, it's something that I talked to somebody recently about short-term rentals and their philosophy with a short-term rental was it doesn't make a lot of sense to buy a small house in a small neighborhood, pay a hundred thousand dollars. You might as well raise the money and go big and buy, you know, a million dollar house, for example, because the amount of work is pretty much the same on a million dollar house and a, $100,000 house. Is is there any anything, any parallels you can draw in self-storage? In other words, does it make sense to even go toward the mom and pop facility when you could just go for the class B or class A? If As long as you could raise the money or you had the means, would is there any practical reason to start small? Well, the difference is you can learn the business, right? You, okay. If you're going to try to do it yourself, you're going to operate it yourself. If you're going to hire a management company, then going a little bit larger scale is more appropriate. I agree with your point on that. Um, but then at the same point in time, you have to have the credibility with the bank. So if you've never done anything, it'd be the equivalent of if you've never done anything in real estate, but you wanted to get into um, residential, and instead of doing your first fix and flip, 
you're buying a trying to buy a 200 apartment unit building. Okay. They're going to say, well, what do you know about apartments? Yeah. So it's the same sort of thing. So if, if you're very experienced or have experience in real estate, then the transition to a larger self-storage facility would be very natural. In your experience, and I know that it's sort of like a depends question. I, I know that it varies. I know that. But in, in your world, in the, in, the, in the units that you've bought, what is, what is the range of cost one could expect from a Class C versus Class B versus Class A, right? I know it probably depends if you're downtown San Diego, it's different than downtown some little Iowa town, right? But just in general, we're talking like under a million for most Class Cs, a million to five million, then 10 million or more. Like where, where is that range? What does it look like? So somebody could have some sort of a concept of if I want to buy a Class C storage facility, what is the range of cost I might expect? Class C, I'd say a million would be high. Okay. So, so I mean, I've seen things trade at four hundred thousand dollars, five hundred, six hundred thousand okay. dollars. Okay. Um, the class A, the class B that we bought, we just recently bought, was um, just over two million dollars. Okay. It was three hundred units. Okay. The class A that we've not bought a class A. What we have done is we bought underperforming or non-performing commercial buildings and converted them into class A. Okay. So we're actually creating self-storage and then. The idea is that we will sell that. We're, we're creating a portfolio of assets, and then we're going to see them. We're going to sell them uh, to a, a mid-level REIT, if you will. Okay. That's um, interesting. So how, how long have you been acquiring short, uh, storage uh, facilities? How, how long have you been doing this? We started uh, self-storage in 2013. 2013. Okay. So for the past eight, nine years, whatever, right. um, something like that, nine years you've been doing this. And then when... How, how big of a portfolio before you eventually want to sell? What is the goal? Well, right now we're at about three quarters of a million square feet of self storage, and we're like we're like to get probably five or six more uh, facilities under our belt, and then we have a, a substantial enough portfolio to flip it. Interesting. So it's measured in square feet, not door. Like in you know, like multifamily, it's how many doors. It's not units for you. It's square feet. That's how you measure your portfolio. It, it is done by both, but keep in mind, like, for instance, if my 10 by 20s are not selling very well, I can convert them into two 10 by 10s. Yeah. 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 And so you don't have that flexibility within multifamily. Multifamily is, you know, you're, you can't change that really. It's really difficult to change that. So, but in self storage, I can alter that square. I can alter the unit configuration to match the, the market condition. That makes sense. That's kind of what I was assuming when you were talking about square feet, because it's so malleable how you divvy that up. Um, I know that it, living living a life that's full that that matters that makes you happy is something that matters to you too. Does your decision to be in self storage play into that? Does it does it does it can is it more conducive to the lifestyle that you're looking for? Uh, absolutely, but I would say that it's also conducive to not just my current lifestyle, but what I'm overall looking to accomplish. Mm -hmm. So um, I've had two major mentors in my life. I talked about the first one. Um, the second one is um, uh, the president of High Point, and he, he owns Great Harvest Bread and Lazy Boy. Mm -hmm. And what he was talking to me about was when when I first met him, I was only doing small residential deals, or you know, let's call it either single family homes or 12 unit or nine unit deals within mm -hmm. the Chicago land market. And his point was everyone is deal to deal. You're not building a, a, a sustainable business that you can flip or sell. And so as a result of it, your business is always generated upon what your next deal is. Yeah. So within this portfolio, what we're looking to do is create a portfolio so that we have a business to sell as opposed to a single product to sell. 
And so that's how I've altered it. And that's how we've gone from just within the Chicagoland market, like a, a small segment of the Chicagoland market, to now we're from Wisconsin all the way to Maine. Gotcha. So just out of curiosity, this is maybe maybe it's, it's too early in your journey to answer this question, but maybe you've looked ahead. How does how do how are um, storage units valued? Like when you go to sell it, is it like a multiple of net revenue, or like how, how do they how do you sell a, a storage unit portfolio? Well, it, it's exactly the same as multifamily, so it's okay. cap rate. They're oh, looking okay. at a cap okay. rate and they're looking at NOI. Okay, and so you know we've seen when the REITs have bought them, the cap rates have been as low as high threes or low fours. Wow. Right now, class A, I would say is healthy would be trading around six, six and a half. Um, class A's and B's could be anywhere from six to 9%, depending on the marketplace. Okay, And so everyone is evaluated upon the NOI. Now, the, the difference is <clears throat> when you're dealing with a smaller operator that is, as I said, pulling cash out, it's hard to verify the income to get the true yeah. NOI to get the true cap rate valuation. Right, And so that's like when the one that we bought in Michigan, the guy literally ran it with a flip phone, texting, and a hand, a notepad where he did hand ledgers in terms of every month. So he literally had a graph paper that every month was one different column in the graph wow. paper. And so for us to get that, to verify that income, to give it to the bank to say, hey, historically, this is what it's been done. We've had to take that notepad. He Xeroxed it and then faxed it to us. He didn't even PDF it. He faxed it to us. So that way we could create spreadsheets that showed what the true income of the property was. So you bought this house in 1997 when flip phones and faxing still happened <laughs> then, I assume. Did you have to go back in time to buy this thing or how'd you do that? No, so, this, is the, this is this year that we crazy. bought this facility. And, um, you know, he, he, this is the crazy part. So um, he had a, a flip mail slot on the side of his building. Then, you know, that he took a unit and then he put a, a metal dock like for HVAC in dropped it right into a safe. And so people were depositing cash and checks into the safe. And then every day or every other other day, he would go and literally empty the safe and pull out the cash. Wow. And so so the first thing we did was just automate the whole system. You know, we said, you know, you're no longer able to pay with cash or checks. Yeah. You know, we're, we're doing, uh, you know, ACH, debit, all those sorts of things. And then um, the other reason why we bought it was 30% below market pricing in terms of this the uh, revenue. And so we would just came in and raise the rents. So, okay, a couple questions. I'm I'm in Michigan. I'm from Michigan. Where in Michigan was this, just out of curiosity? Jackson, Michigan. So Jackson, Michigan. Yep. Right here. Yep. I know exactly where it is. Um okay. So you mentioned you made some some improvements. Why did he want to sell? Just because did it just give people an example? How did you get it 30% under value? Like, was there a, a some sort of a personal thing or need going on that he had to sell or just getting older and didn't want to deal with it? He was done. He wanted to retire and pull the shoe. You know, okay. so he, he got to that point. He he built it. He developed it. I mean, it's, it was his baby. Mm-hmm. His wife's daycare center was on the property next door. And, um, you know, she had sold that business. And, you know, it was time for him to move to Florida. How'd you find it? Uh, it was, we had someone bring it to us. Oh, okay. So, all right. That's cool. Um, yeah. All right. So you mentioned you you obviously changed the, um, the duct work where you drop cash into a safe. <laughs> so what kind of, generally speaking, when you buy these facilities, what kind of like low hanging fruit do you look for that you can make quick, easy improvements in the, in the property or the situation? Well, that's the first one we bought that we didn't do any development on. So the only thing that we put on there, we're putting an automatic gate with a PTI system. So, which is an access code. And once 
they enter their code, we know who's driving into the facility. Mm -hmm. So each locker has its own unique identification code. Right. So if they're not paying, we can cut them off. Got it. Um, and so that was the only improvements that we've done. All the other ones, you know, we're, we're putting in everything from new roofs to HVAC to elevators to uh, electrical. Wow. Uh, you know, we're completely redoing the building. So we're, we're spending... You know, we're buying the building well below replacement cost, mm -hmm. but then we're putting, you know, between three and four million dollars into the buildings to fix them up. Wow. Okay. That makes sense. Just to add like a gate, for example, in this one you talked about, you just basically added a gate. What does it cost to add a gate? That sounds expensive to add a, a electric gate with codes and everything. What is that like just out of curiosity? It's, a, you know, just under 20 grand. Okay. All right. I mean, there's electrical, there's foundation, there's the gate, and then there's the, the keypad systems. Right, right, right. Okay. And so you're doing a lot to these, generally speaking. They're not plug and play. You're not buying them and just jumping in and, and just like making minor tweaks to the management efficiency. You're literally putting in a lot of like a lot of work into these. For the ones that we're developing, yes. So yeah. like we're, we're working on another new construction. We're building it from ground up. There's literally nothing on the property. Um, then we're, we're, we're building two of those right now, and then we're modifying two. So we're expanding. And then we're also going to be converting another one or another two in the, in this year as well. If you had your way in a perfect world, would you only develop new storage facilities or would you always prefer to find some that are underperforming and undervalued? In other words, in a perfect world, what's a better model for you? What do you prefer? I, what I prefer, I mean, there's more creativity on a new, um, but at the same point in time, there's more work that goes into it. Mm -hmm. Like the one we're having to do right now, we're, we're having to do entitlements, change the zoning, go through those review processes. Yeah. Um, all the other ones that we bought, like the, for instance, the one we're working on in Louisville or the one we finished up in Dayton, um, those were all zoned as of right. So all we had to do is come up with the building permits, submit them, and then we were off to the races. Okay. Um, so it's easier on the conversions. I gotcha. And, and again, not to, there's no comparison here, but it's just in my brain because I just interviewed somebody. But I know short-term rentals, for example, a lot of municipalities are fighting hard to keep them out. They're considered undesirable by a lot of cities. How does self-storage land with the city? Are they typically open and, and, and like excited to have you there? And to like, or I mean, I'm being serious because it, it, it no, could I be one know. of those things where maybe, they, I don't know, maybe they like like it, but, or is it is a little bit of a fight? Do they, do they resist when you try to rezone it to use it for that? purpose? Over my 30 plus years in real estate development, my, my uh, understanding is that when a city is going under economic challenges, like with a recessionary market, they welcome anything. Okay. And when the market is booming, they hate everything Yeah. and they yeah. get really picky. So we've had communities where they said, we want you to rewrite the zoning. And we've gone through the process in 60 days. Okay. So we've, we've had that three times. And one of them was in Milwaukee where they changed the definition of self-storage from storage to self-storage. Hmm. So when we bought it, we had a certificate of occupancy for self-storage. Yeah. And then they called us up and said, oh, by the way, you didn't really get it. Um, you know, the person who gave it to you made a mistake. They didn't know that the code had changed. And uh -huh. so we had to go through the process again. Wow. Um, but we've dealt with other communities like I would say Toledo and Dayton where they were absolutely against it, even though the buildings were zoned for it. Really, and so we were we were working on a uh, pace financing, and they were withholding the pace financing because they didn't want it. And my response to them is, if you didn't want it, then why is the building zoned that way? This building yeah. has been vacant for twenty years, right? So why do you not want it if it's zoned that way? And the reason why it was vacant was the industry had left, 
And the building would have been perfect for apartments, except for the fact that the underground parking wouldn't work because of the column structure. And so they, no one could figure out how to get enough parking in there to support the use. Well, self-storage, we don't, we don't need any parking. We need like four spaces. Right. So as a result of it, it was a perfect use for self-storage. And we have all this development around us. We have over a thousand new rental units within half a mile. And so that's where we saw it as a great opportunity. When there is obje- when there are objections to self storage, what are the what are the basic fears, even if they're unfounded or ridiculous? But what do you hear? What is the reasons why you get pushback from the cities? Not in my town. Why? What, why? It's not like it's a brothel. I mean, it's a self storage. Like, why would they have a problem with it? <laughs> yeah, it, it, that's, that's the same question I ask. And I think it, it's the it, one is the stereotype like. People don't need it. Okay. You know, that means they have too much stuff. Yeah. Which is, which means they don't understand the product yeah. because anybody who's downsizing from an apartment or home to move into the city needs transitions. And most apartments don't have a lot of extra storage space. Yeah. And then businesses, 50% of our business, uh, 50% of our clients are businesses and really? they're using it for supply. Huh. So they're, mm-hmm. they're using it for small inventory. So they're clearly not understanding the product type. Mm-hmm. But then the second thing is it's what I would call dark. You know, it's not a bright, lively business in the sense like it's creating mm. a whole lot of foot traffic or it's not a thing to attract people yeah. to draw them to the downtown area. Gotcha. But but you still need it. Like, for instance, not okay, nothing against drugstores, but you know, if you had your choice between a restaurant and a drugstore, most people will say, What well, I would want a restaurant there, but everyone knows you need a drugstore just as much as you need a restaurant. Yeah. Right. Yep. Totally. That makes sense. Well, listen, I I know that uh, there's a lot more we could talk about when it comes to self-storage and a ton more that you can talk about specifically. But if people want to reach out to you and find out more, if they want to inquire, maybe partner, I don't know, anything in your world, how can they do that? How How could and should they get a hold of you? Mike, I appreciate that question. So first of all, if anyone does reach out and mentions this show, we will send them two things. We will send them a feasibility study that we did on our Dayton project, which said why we should go forward with self-storage in this location. And then two, we'll also send them a self-storage deal analyzer. So it has all the formulas plugged in. All you have to do is put in the assumptions and it will calculate it to see what the, the risk level is for that deal. I love so that. So if someone does come across something, they've never done one, they can still understand a little bit better. That's amazing. That's It's the first time someone's offered on my show. And I've done, I think we're going, we're closing in on 600 interviews now. It's the first time somebody's offered a tool to evaluate risk or to evaluate uh, uh, an investment. So I love it. That's great. So just mention Just Start Real Estate when you reach out. How can they reach out? Uh, info at codamg.com. That's info at coda, C-O-D-A-M as in Mary, G's and George.com. Got it. Info at codamg.com. All right. I'll have that in the show notes, guys. So you can go and check that out if you're not in a position to write it down. Uh, but Scott, this has been fun and it's been informative. I really appreciate your time. And it's uh, it's definitely a, a cool asset class and something that I think people should seriously consider because we are in either, depending on how you look at it, we're in a recession or we're going into recession. I don't know too many people who deny that there's a recession coming or that we're in it. So we're well, somewhere. I know one who does. <laughs> well, I know one who does too, but he's wrong, I think. Um, I think we all kind of feel it right in our pocketbook. So this is a time, it sounds like a great time to be in it. And I, I, I don't think I'm wrong about that, but reach out to Scott directly if you'd like more information. Get those downloadables. That's really huge. That's a great asset for you to, to get and it's free. So go and do that. Scott, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Our pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you. 
All right, that's a wrap. It was fun. I like talking to Scott. Uh, definitely self-storage is something you should be considering because I've heard now multiple times from various investors, people I've had on the show and friends of mine who have really talked uh, a lot about self-storage and how it is recession-proof and how it is something that people always need. And so if that's of interest to you, if that's an asset class that you're interested in, reach out to Scott, find out more. But in any event, do something. Do not just sit and listen. Don't stay on the sidelines. Jump in and become part of this whole real estate thing because it will absolutely change your life. I think you know that if you've not started yet, you need to get started. That's the whole point of the show, to get started. Whether it's self-storage, multifamily, single family, whatever it is, now's the time to start. Don't wait for a different market. Don't wait for the end of the recession. Don't wait for anything. Get out there now and get going. All right, we'll see you next time.